Tonight we have the uh, privilege of hearing, ha having Harry Fletcher come and address us and give us an update on the ministries that uh, we are supporting as well as share from the word from us. Uh, Harry on this stint, so to speak, has been with the good news for a little over 20 years, uh, close to 20 years. Before that he passed a church, he was president of a seminary, and then just to make him feel welcome and old, um, when he was with Good News Mission the first time, I was in elementary school. And uh, <laughs> so I know that you think I'm old because of my gray hair. However, uh, an elder of mine is going to come and speak with you. But anyway, brother, if you would uh, <laughs> come on up and share with us, we would be uh, excited to hear what you have to say. I <laughs> knows how to hurt a guy, doesn't he? I'll tell you. Uh, let me uh, make sure I've got this baby right. Uh, where am I going to unfreeze? Right there. I think we're going to be good to go. Boy, it's good to be back with you. Um, every March we work out of Hilton Head Island, and we have some of the most wonderful partner churches in the Low Country. I spend uh, January and February down in Orlando. And most of, I had 65 personal visits uh, with partners in ministry, but they're all businessmen and businesswomen. Uh, but for some reason in the low country, we have wonderful churches and none is a greater partner church than Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church. Thank you so much. All through the years, uh, you've stayed right with us. And uh, you know, some churches can support uh, minimally we have a lot of churches up in Maine, New Hampshire, and I mean, it's a sacrifice, $100 a month, but uh, you give so uh, generously uh, for the work in Pakistan and the work in Tumen, Siberia, where the old gulags used to be back in Soviet days. And you've taken on two of the hardest ministries that we really have, and yet two of the ones that are bearing such great fruit to the glory of God. If you think of it, and I know you get a lot of prayer requests and a lot of things on your own heart and mind, but our, uh, my successor, the Vice President of International Ministry, I am now, by the way, I've got a new title. Uh, it's called Global Ambassador, so I'm still trying to figure out what I do, but uh, we've got that down, baby down too. But Gary's going over with our director from Middle East, North Africa, Bachara Karkafi. He's, uh, he, was one of, he was our first chaplain in Beirut, Lebanon. But uh, they're going to Pakistan tomorrow. And let me just tell you something, uh, and I'm not a spooky kind of a guy, but there are two countries that I've been in where I don't know how else to put it, but you just sense the presence of evil. I, I don't know how else to say it. And Pakistan is one of them. And uh, it is a hard, when you're dealing with an, a very violent Islamic population, you know the enemy is present there. And the enemy is indeed present. So pray for their safety. But, you know, when I was there, just to be there with these brothers and sisters, I was thinking we had a, um, a precarious time. We, we were shut down the last day because there were threats on bombing our uh, place where we were training our chaplains. But we got all the training in. But uh, I, I thought many times when I was there, I'm going to be home in another week, 10 days, whatever it was, however much longer I was going to be there. But these people are staying. They're the heroes. They're the ones you don't get to see, you don't get to hear from. I wish so much you could, but uh, that's just an impossibility. 
but they're the real heroes and they put their life uh, on the line every, uh, every day. So I wanna take you a little bit here, if I can, and if I can get this again unfrozen, I think, freeze. Oh, I need to point it there, don't I, maybe? Here we go, there we go. I think, are we going now or? Hope it's still frozen there. Uh, do we look young or what, huh? Now that was taken yesterday afternoon. And if you believe that, I'll sell you the Brooklyn Bridge or something. But that was taken a few years ago. And there's only one person on there that's changed much. And we won't say which one, will we? We wouldn't dare say, say that. But um, thank you for your, for your partnership in, uh, in the Lord. And uh, going now to Pakistan, just a, a couple of pictures, because a, a lot of times it's very difficult to get pictures, trust me, in a Pakistani prison. Remember, it's, owned, it's operated by the government. We are there by invitation only. We don't have a right to be there. We are, they know who we are. They know what we stand for. And if you ask me, well, why would they let you in, evangelical chaplains? All I can say, the, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. He opens some doors and he closes other doors. I don't know any other explanation uh, other than maybe they want to look like they are somewhat tolerant. And so that kind of, from a government standpoint, may give that little glimpse into it as well. Um, but uh, it, it's hard to get some real uh, pictures of, of, of what is happening in this uh, country. Um, Salem Nikah testimony. Uh, this is his own handwriting. We didn't try to edit it, so I want you to understand how he's trying to express himself. I am Shaban Sarif, and I have been in jail for the last three years. My cousins put me in jail and blamed me falsely. I plan to punish them hardly. I think what he means is hard. Uh, I plan to punish them uh, hard whenever I'm set free. But Chaplain Babar al-Aditta visited jail and gave teaching on Romans 12, 19 to 21. My friends, do not try to punish others when they wrong you, but wait for God to punish them with his anger. It is written, I will punish those who do wrong. I will repay, says the Lord. This verse changed me and put my, I put my case on the Lord because he judges everyone. I am thankful to Good News Jail and Prison Ministry for sending their chaplains to visit inmates and share the gospel in jail. Praise the Lord. Amen. This is a former Muslim. Okay? And that chaplain wouldn't be there without you. I hope you really catch a glimpse of that tonight. We couldn't do what we do without you. You can't go there. You do what they can't do. You provide means finances, resources, so they can live and go there. They do what you can't do. They actually go into the prisons and jails and share the gospel of Christ. Haved Masi writes this testimony. I'm Havid. I was in jail, but now I'm free and thankful for the chaplains. The chaplain taught me about the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are illiterate people, and we learn when someone teaches us. They're uneducated, but that doesn't mean they're dumb. They're smart. Okay, they just need somebody to come and help them. I'm thankful for Good News Jail and Prison Ministry and the chaplains. Now I'm spending very happy life with my family. And that's what we want to see. Get saved, discipled, out of jail, in a local church, and then with the family. By the way, what they have to do over there sometimes, it's kind of like the witness protection program in America. If you're, say, part of the mafia, then the government wants you to give information. They relocate you. They give you a, a new identity. In some places in Pakistan, that's what they do. 
uh, with a Christian family. They have networking with pastors in various places of Pakistan, and they'll take a family like this instead of going back to his Muslim territory uh, or village where they know he'll probably be killed or his family then they just transplant him to another locality with a new name and a new identity but he can be there with his christian brothers uh, and sisters let me take you over to uh, tumen siberia just love the ministry there in tumen and and in krasnoyarsk as in most prisons there are activities and uh, these pictures share the uh, inmates involved in an in-depth bible study gathered for a service, then having time of recreation uh, in a game of chess. There are a group of prisons. They're called the Forest Prisons. Now, these are the ones that were uh, operated under Soviet days and called the Gulags uh, that are located between 150 to 200 miles away from the normal populated areas. Until you've been on one of those roads, friends, you don't know what it is to travel back in there. It's incredible. And these chaplains, they go in their four-wheel, supply them a four-wheel vehicle. They'll go in those blizzards, and there's no one removing the snow, but they do it uh, for the sake of the gospel. They write, the roads can be a challenge regardless of the season, snow in the winter, water and mud in the spring. Chaplain Anna works in the ministry in these types of prisons. In addition, sometimes the chaplains will, will take a team and be gone for a few days a week to reach into these distant facilities. The prison you uh, have seen in these pictures is a strict, uh, what we would call a maximum security prison. So this is where the vilest of the vile uh, are kept. Um, there are more than 40 prisons in that area. These prisons, also called colonies, are places where time seems to stop. The meetings that the chaplains hold help them to brighten gray days and the hopelessness and despair of everyday life. It encourages them to think and reflect on their lives and on God. And so these Three prisoners, Ivan, Vitaly, and Eugene. In the past, they were leaders of criminal gangs, and today each one has given his life to Christ. Once they were mobsters, now they are brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you catch the sense of, um, of Luke chapter 16, where Jesus taught a parable called the parable of the unjust steward. And uh, it's, a, it's a little bit difficulty of a parable to understand. But in verse 9, he makes a very important thing I hope you catch tonight. He said, to take the finances God is and the resources God has given you. Invest them in the work of what God is doing today. He says, someday in heaven, people are going to come up to you. And I think they're going to come up to you from Pakistan and from Siberia. And they're going to say, you're my friend. And you're going to look at them, he or she, and say, I don't think I've ever met you, sir or ma'am. And they'll say, no, I've never met you either. But I was in prison in Lahore, Pakistan, or Tumen, Siberia. And the chaplain came, and he shared the gospel, and I trusted Christ. And my life was changed forever, and now I'm in heaven. And then the chaplain started telling us how they were able to come in there, that there was a church in America, Savannah, Ferguson Avenue Baptist, and because you generously gave and you prayed, those chaplains were able to come. And then Jesus said, by use of your money, you will have friends who will receive you into everlasting habitations. So you're doing it by faith. You're giving by faith. You're praying by faith. That's what we as Christians do. We live by the just shall live by faith. But you're not seeing any results yet. But it isn't payday yet. 
Payday comes at the judgment seat of Christ, right? And for all eternity, when you'll realize someday the impact you had over there, and I'm sure other places as well with your worldwide missionary outreach, that has made an incredible difference in the lives of so many. I don't know who your other missionaries are and your organizations, but on behalf of them, and especially on behalf, I can speak for good news. Thank you from the bottom of our heart. It uh, just means more than you could ever know. Now we're going to make a uh, little shift here, and we're going to go into the uh, scriptures. And if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 12. Um, Pastor Dimmitt has been so gracious and kind through the years, and so I said, well, how long do I have tonight total? He's brother, you can preach as long as you want, but we're leaving at 7 o'clock. So uh, I'm not going to be here talking to myself, okay? So we'll, uh, we'll get right to the text. It's always a, uh, a thing when you pray over and you say, Lord, what, what would you have me share? It, it's kind of difficult because I'm not with you day in and day out. And I don't know the needs, and etc. But I do know this, that we're entering the most important, uh, most holy season of the year, aren't we? And um, next Sunday, I believe, is Palm Sunday. Uh, and then the next following Thursday is Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and, of course, glorious um, uh, Resurrection Day on, on the Easter Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection like we do every Sunday and really every day. Uh, John 12 is introducing us to that week that we call Passion Week. In the first 12 chapters of John, you may know that... The emphasis is the revelation of Christ to the world. Nicodemus, Samaritan woman, adulterous woman. It's his ministry to the world. The emphasis is mainly evangelism. John, in fact, tells us why he wrote the gospel, doesn't he? He says, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But he says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name. John tells you the whole reason he wrote this book is the deity of Christ and by believing in Christ to have eternal life. Um, so then when you come to John chapter 13, it's Christ's revelation to his own. He takes his disciples aside. They go up into the upper room. And, um, and then after that, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you enter into the passion, the arrest, the betrayal, the mock trials the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then the epilogue in chapter 21, the post-resurrection uh, ministry of our Lord Jesus to his, uh, to his disciples. It's interesting that if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll just use a, instead of taking time for each one, just so you know that 40 to 50% of their writing, in John's case, 21 chapters, 40 to 50% deals with the last week of Jesus' life. So all the previous chapters deal with the first 30, 33 years of his life. So you can see the importance the gospel writers put to Passion Week because most of their writing deals with the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 12, 1 to 9 is a great passage on what I would call unreserved love with sacrificial worship. I think John Piper uh, summarizes it well. He says, I think the point of the story is this. It's a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. 
And it is not beautiful, but suicidal. Suicidal indeed, asked Judas Iscariot. It's not beautiful, but suicidal when they don't. So in our passage this evening, we see the unreserved love, uh, sacrificial worship, great emotion, reverential exhilaration as Mary of Bethany stands as our example. Now, if you put in a, in a, a screen, if you had John 12 and then Matthew 26 and Mark 14 up on the screen, you would see they're talking about one and the same event we're looking at tonight. But each one adds a little bit of something to it that the other writers leave out. So each writer was led by the Holy Spirit, what to pen, and the Holy Spirit guided the writers of Scripture to make sure that every single word in letters was, was without any error whatsoever. It's what we call inerrancy or infallibility. But it's interesting to compare the three uh, and see what they say. So they're introducing us to a, a dinner fellowship held at the beginning of Passion Week, and it's in the home of Simon. He's always called Simon the leper, but I like calling him Simon the cleansed leper now because Jesus apparently cleansed him along uh, the way. So the, so the dinner is actually in Simon the leper's home in the small village of Bethany. You can go there today. It's a little hamlet about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, John doesn't say it, but Matthew does and Mark, that the 12 disciples were also present. So it wasn't just the 12 disciples were there. And then you had Mary and Martha, sisters, and their brother, Lazarus. Lazarus was the most unusual guest. And he was also the most popular person at that time in Bethany. Because the preceding chapter, chapter 11, you remember, he died. And what? Uh, Jesus raised him from the dead. He was the most unusual person at a dinner party. I'm thinking today, just suppose after church today, you would go to somebody's house for a little fellowship and some food. And suppose across the table from you was a person who had been in the other world for four days. Can you imagine talking to somebody who actually died and went into the other world for four days? I mean, wouldn't you love to talk to someone and just glean, just answer some very pointed questions? We all wonder. We know certain things about the other world and heaven, but there's so much we don't know and our mind thinks about it a lot. Well, here was Lazarus. He was in that other place for four days. And it's also a reminder that one of these days you and I are going to be there for four days and four years and 4,000 years, and we'll be there for all eternity. And I can't come to a passage uh, like this without uh, realizing how much we want our hearts stirred by a passage like this, because eternity is real. And I think the older we get, the more real it becomes to us. I don't know about you, but I get up in the night, I think about it. Is, is today the day? When I preach like I'm preaching tonight and I'm on driving here, I'm wondering, is this the last message or are there more? So you think about it a lot. And it's a wise person who lives from heaven's balcony and thinks on heavenly things rather than earthly, spiritual things rather than physical, eternal rather than temporal. It'll motivate every aspect of your life. And that's what the Lord wants to do. He's preparing us for that time in eternity. 
And so I pray that uh, the Lord might touch your heart tonight. You'll leave with an overflowing love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, I'm thinking to myself on a Sunday night, um, it's very unusual to have a Sunday night service, by the way, and it's so encouraging to me. But on a Sunday night, you, I, I don't know any of you really. You know, I know some of you to say hello, I saw you last year, but I don't know you. But I'm thinking you've got a level of commitment that's there that you'd be out here Sunday uh, Sunday evening. And you know, if this message is a bomb tonight, you're going to still do okay tomorrow. You are. You're going to be just fine tomorrow. And you'll be fine the next day. That's just the truth of it. But when I preach a message like this, you, and, and you can assume, and it's so bad to do it, I do it too many times, assuming that everybody here knows the Lord as a Bible student, disciple of Jesus, and yet there might be somebody here that isn't ready to face eternity. And I pray that you would know, come to know the Lord if you don't know him, if you don't have that assurance at one second, whether you're five years old or 10 years old or 15 or 95, that you know one second after death you're in the presence of God Almighty. Uh, talking about hell or condemnation or judgment isn't very popular. I know that today. It's never been very popular. But I like the words of the old... Uh, great preacher Vance Havner who said when I pastored a country church a former uh, a, a former member a farmer didn't like the sermons I preached on hell he said preach about the meek and lowly Jesus Havner said that's where I got my information about hell and uh, it's true John MacArthur said this Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible in fact he spoke more about hell than everybody else in the Bible combined that's interesting isn't it and that's why he came, to rescue us from hell and judgment and condemnation. That's why he died on the cross of Calvary. Now, Martha's role here is to thank Jesus. Uh, to thank Jesus by uh, seeing to the details of the dinner. And Mary's role was to thank Jesus by pouring this expensive ointment out on Jesus Christ. Every time I come to Martha, I almost feel like I need to... Uh, rescue her a little bit because she always gets bad press did you ever notice that always gets bad press and the the word martha martha you're troubled about many things mary's chosen the better part etc etc and i understand that but we sort of degrade martha a little bit and i think we need to lift her back up she served and service is regarded nobly in scripture very nobly thank the lord for those who serve right thank the lord for those who clean this place and so when you come in, it's a good testimony. Thank the Lord I heard something about a fellowship dinner or something, lunch or something next Saturday. Somebody's got to cook that meal. Somebody's got to clean the mess up afterwards. Somebody's got to do a whole lot of stuff behind the scenes, and they're serving. So you're, you're in good company when you serve because the Lord Jesus Christ uh, himself talked about that i am among you as he who serves well the dinner is served in verse two our attention is no longer on lazarus it's no longer on martha or simon the leper but upon mary the sister of martha and lazarus and she's worshiping uh, the son of god let me pick it up with you in john 12 1 six days before the passover jesus therefore came to bethany where lazarus was whom jesus had raised from the dead so they gave a dinner for him there martha served and lazarus was one of the uh, reclining with him at table mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of jesus to wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume let's just stop right there let's look at see what mary's doing here 
And we talk about uh, her worshiping the Lord, and we want to see the manner of her worship. And when you look at this passage, it seems to me, number one, we would say it was personal, and yet it was a spectacle. It was personal, yet it was a spectacle to the crowd. She spontaneously uh, enters the room where the men are gathered, where Jesus and his friends were eating supper. And she takes this uh, humble home and she transplants it uh, into a temple of God. And when she did that, she disregarded two cultural customs of the day. Number one, a Jewish woman never sat at the table of men. Men ate by themselves, the women served. The women and the children ate in another room. That's still true in Middle Eastern culture today. Wouldn't that be boring uh, not to have, be able to have dinner with your wife and children? But that's, that's culture. And the second thing, Jewish women uh, never uh, would let their hair down literally in the presence of men. And so she responds in complete disregard for Jewish rules of propriety, but it's her heart speaking, not her head. And it's a love without restraint. It's extravagant love. I also know she has no fear of the uh, mistreatment from the enemies of Jesus in the last verse of chapter 11, where chief priests and Pharisees had given an order, we're out to arrest Jesus, we want to execute him. Now, if you're a friend of an enemy of the state, then you're an enemy of the state as well. Okay, And so when Mary did this, she really puts her own life and her home in jeopardy because now she is identifying as a disciple, as a follower of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was lost in a deep and meaningful worship with the Lord Jesus. And I, I meditate on this in my own life and I say, how we long, how I long for that kind of worship because too often... In our worship of the Lord, we are more concerned about what others around us think about us than what the Lord is thinking at that very moment that our heart should be focused on him. And so we see it was a special kind of worship. Not only personal and spectacle, but it was planned, yet it was spontaneous. I think Jesus makes it plain in verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The scriptures seem very clear that not one of the disciples contemplated the reality of Jesus' imminent death. Although we know that was the focus of his entire teaching for the previous six months. If you ever study the book of Matthew, it breaks down very neatly. Matthew 4.21, after the temptation, the birth and all that. Uh, after that, in chapter 4.21, it says, From that time forth, Jesus preached, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when you come to chapter 16, right after Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, it says, From that time forth, the exact same words as in Matthew 4.24. From Matthew 4.21 to 16.21, he's preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. In chapter 16, verse 21 of Matthew, it says, from that time forth, Jesus began to teach how he must go to Jerusalem, suffer under the chief priests and scribes, and be crucified. So for the last six months, he's been teaching on this as, as an absolute fact. But it, it seems to me that the only one that really catches this truth is Mary herself. She realizes his death is imminent. And that's why she does, or one of the reasons why she does what she does. And so we ask the question, don't we? All these people, why, where did she get that spiritual insight that others did not have? 
And I think there's a little phrase that helps us give us a clue. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And you know what? Every time you read of Mary of Bethany in the scriptures, every time, you will read what? She is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Every time. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom. Remember, it said the Apostle Paul, uh, as Saul of Tarsus, he did what? He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, meaning he was learning from him. And, and the disciple uh, is, becomes as his teacher. Jesus said in Luke 6, 40, Every disciple, when he is fully trained or taught, shall be like his teacher. And so Mary learned these things sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can't do that literally today. His physical body, glorified body, is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But we can sit at the feet of Jesus, can't we? Through the word of God, through meditation, through prayer. And that's a discipline of life. And it's a hard discipline uh, to develop. But it's a very rewarding one, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now let's move on from the manner of her worship. And we see the motivation of her worship. And God alone really knows it. But it seems that what comes out is one of selfless, selfless devotion. Her heart is overflowing with love, with gratitude. She's behind the scenes. She's in the other room. Focuses on Simon the leper, Lazarus, the men, Jesus, the disciples. And all of a sudden she rushes and she finds this alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. And she bursts forth in love. In fact, it says it was worth 300 denarii. Now, the denarii doesn't mean much to you. But remember when Jesus taught the parable of the laborers in the field in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, and he said that the common working wage for one day for a common laborer was what? One denarius a day. So it would be kind of what you and I would call uh, the lowest paid worker today, the minimum wage worker, okay? So if he got, if this ointment was worth 300 denarii, that means it was 300 working days, which would translate today for a, a common labor in our society, $25,000. Now she takes something that's worth $25,000, poof, it's gone. It's all gone. Because... She is doing this out of her selfless devotion for Christ. She can't restrain herself. Mark 14.3 says she smashes the alabaster jar and opens it. Matthew and Mark both tell us it started on his head. And then John tells us it all went all the way down to his feet. And she, she undid her hair and she used the hair to anoint the Lord Jesus. I don't think she did it just simply because to show that Jesus was going to die soon. I think she did to show her love and devotion. I really do. And to identify with Jesus in his hour of grief. Because what? Not many days before that. Remember? When she is at the funeral of her brother. And he's died. She's angry. She's weeping. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's almost like you can hear them talking among themselves. And then Jesus gets there and they're kind of angry. Lord, if you had been here, meaning what? You should have been here. 
Why, we sent word to you, Lazarus, your, your friend is sick. They didn't ask him to come. It's like somebody calls you tonight and say, by the way, your father's dying. Well, they don't have to ask you to come. You just get up and you go. And that's what they thought Jesus would do, but he didn't. He delayed, didn't he? Four days he delayed till, he, till Lazarus died. And then he got there. Jesus is never late, but he often delays. And there's a difference. If you're late, you should have been there on time. If you delay, there's intention. You purposely delay going there. Why? That the glory of God might come out in the resurrection of the Lord. But Jesus looked into her eyes and then two words, John 11, are some of the greatest words, I think, in all the Bible. And I get so tired and sick and tired of hearing people take those two verses with the idea of what's the shortest verse in the Bible, like some nitwit would ask. Jesus wept. I mean, think about the eternal, omnipotent Son of God wept tears down his cheek with Mary to identify with her in her hour of grief as well as just to weep over all that sin had wrecked its havoc upon mankind. Now she has the opportunity to I look into Jesus' eyes and identify with this man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Second thing, sacrificial dedication. Mark tells us that she first broke the vessel so as not to save any of it. Verse 5, worth 300 denarii, the year's wages. She gave everything of value that she had, that she could put her hands on. I can only imagine after she burst in that room that there must have been absolute silence. She disregarded the cultural protocol, the customs. She takes the richest thing they have and she pours it all out. She broke the alabaster jar, Mark says, so as not to save any of it. She didn't just take a few things. No, she broke it to empty it entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there must have been an absolute deafening silence in that room. And then the silence is broken. The hypocrite, the, the self-righteous hypocrite interrupts the silence. Verse 4 of John 12, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him. Can you imagine that epitaph? Simon the leper. But here we read of Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord. We'll never think of Judas Iscariot without thinking he was betrayed the Lord. That's the legacy he left. Why was this ointment, verse 5, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You know, when you read that, if that's all you could read, you think, you know, this guy isn't a half bad guy. I mean, he's got a heart for the poor. And I can imagine, you know what's interesting, if you read Matthew and Mark, did you know this? All the disciples chimed in with the same thing. It wasn't just Judas. Shows the influence of one person, by the way, for good or for bad. Judas spoke out, but the other disciples said, you know, they got, yeah, why a lot of poor people out there, they need it more than Jesus' body. Three, I mean, $25,000 is a lot of money to pour on a person when they're dying. Now, John, he remembers it was 60 years ago. 
I can't remember six days ago. He's recalling events 60 years ago, sure, by the Spirit of God. But he says, at the time I was duped. It's probably what he was thinking. Because if, if it's true for Matthew and Mark, he was one of the ones that chimed in saying, yeah, that makes sense to me, what Judas said. But now he's recalling, he says three things in verse three, uh, in verse six. He was a thief. He was the treasurer. He kept the money. Boy, is that scary. Why is that scary? Because you put your most trusted person in charge of your money. Who here in the church would want a treasurer guarding the money, give an account, who wasn't a person of integrity? That's a, that's a quality they must have. He was the treasurer, meaning he had it all together on the outside, but lacked everything on the inside. And that's what makes it scary. Everyone thought he was the real deal. And then it says he stole for himself. Then I just love the response of Jesus in verses 7 to 8. This is a message all by itself. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Can you just hear Jesus saying that? Judas, leave her alone. Stop it. That's the way I sense it. Leave her alone, Judas. He knew the heart of Judas. And he knew the heart of Mary. Leave her alone. In response to the worth of Jesus, Mary's heart was full of wonder, thankfulness, and joy. And Judas' heart felt none of that. Because he valued money more than he valued Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. Judas loved money. Mary's heart corresponded to the treasure that Jesus is Jesus. Judas's heart contradicted the treasure that is Jesus. Now look at three reasons that Jesus gives why leave her alone, Judas. Now let's start from the reverse order, going uh, down to the last part of verse 8 first. Reason number one, you don't always have me. Reason number two, verse 8a, the poor you have. Reason number three, back in verse seven, so that you may keep it for the day of my burial. So the first reason relates to the value of Jesus, where he says, you do not always have me with you. You see, Mary felt the preciousness of Jesus' presence and what it meant for her and Martha and Lazarus. So leave her alone, Judas. She loves my presence. She loves my body. She loves my physical temple. That's what we relate to. I can't think of my dad. You know, he's been gone 54 years. I can't just think of what he meant to me, what he did, or my mom, who's been gone uh, 34 years. I can't think of that without seeing the vision of their, their body, their personhood. My brothers and my sisters in heaven. I think of how I remember them. And you know, even when we're grieving and they're soon to die, there's something about us that wants to hold on to the body. Even when that body doesn't even have a meaningful life anymore, we don't want to let go. I can still remember when daddy died and we buried him in 1964, I remember their seven children. I remember my brother John. They just didn't want to leave the casket. The service is over. I said, come on, John, we got to go. He just didn't want to leave. There was just something that he didn't want to leave. 
the body. You're going to come to Easter in another two weeks from today, and you'll remember Mary Magdalene. Remember? Mary Magdalene. Some say Mary Magdalene was a harlot. That never says she was a prostitute. Roman Catholic Church built houses of Mary, the Magdala houses, they call it, for prostitutes and former prostitutes. They're doing a good thing by doing that. But it never says she was a prostitute. It says she cast, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. But no, you'll never find in the Bible where it says that. I don't know why we follow stuff like that. That's another story. But she was so thankful that the Lord cast seven demons out of her. And she goes to the tomb early in the morning. She gets there. And she sees the stones moved away. And what she say? They have taken the body of my Lord away, and I know not where they have laid him. And she goes back to John and Peter. She says, John, Peter, get there. They have taken away the body of the Lord. John, Peter, get there. Peter goes in. He looks around, and he scratches his head, and he's wondering. He doesn't have a clue. John looks in. He doesn't remember the scriptures, but he sees the evidence. It says, and John believed. And what did they do? Then they went back, and they had breakfast. What did Mary do? She stayed right there. But all of a sudden, there's two angels sitting at the either end, end of the where Jesus' body had lain. And they said, why are you weeping? Why are you here? They have taken away the body of my Lord, and we know not where they have laid him. It says this three times. Now she turns away, and all of a sudden, there's a, a guest there. Her eyes are full of love. She can't see clearly. All she knows is that the person she loves is gone. The body has been taken, probably by the enemies. And he says, why are you weeping? They have taken away the body of my Lord, and we know what. And then he says that word, remember? Miriam. And she said what? Rabboni, my master, my teacher. It was Jesus. How she identified. Faith had died as seen in Thomas. Hope had died as seen as in the disciples of Emmaus. We had hoped he would deliver Israel. Thomas, I will not believe unless I see that. A nail prince. But Mary's love never died. Reminds me of this Mary here too. Second reason relates to Jesus' uh, presence. Sense of the value of money. When Judas refers to the poor, it's a cover for his covetousness. Jesus is saying, you have no clue what's going on here. I got to move quickly. I got a minute and 30 seconds. Third reason relates to whether Mary will be able to keep on treasuring Jesus when he is being. It's a very difficult verse, you may have noticed. The clue that holds the most weight with me is that Jesus seems to imply that the words of Judas could keep something good from happening. Now, the ointment has already been spread over Jesus' body. But yet Jesus says, leave her alone so she may keep it. Keep what? So she may keep it. For the day of my burial, I assume what he's talking about is her selfless love and devotion. Can she lose that devotion? Peter lost it. Though all deny you, what? I'll never deny you. And the next morning he says, I never knew the man. And maybe Jesus knew that Mary could be sifted by those evil words of Judas Iscariot. So Judas, stop it. Leave her alone. Bug off. Leave her alone so she may keep it, that devotion for the day of my burial.
moral to her worship. I love it. John, Mark 14, 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Go to Siberia, go to Pakistan, go to Venezuela, go wherever you want to, for there is a Christian. They know about this deed. Still spoken of. That haunts me. Because what will people remember about you and me? What are you leaving behind? Okay, we close. Two well-known people have died recently. Legendary physicist Stephen Hawking died this past Wednesday. He spoke candidly in a 2011 Guardian interview saying, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's all you are. In his mind, you're a broken down computer. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. And we should weep that one second after death this past Wednesday, Stephen Hawking realized the folly of those words. Assuming he died believing what he said he believed right here, 2011, lost forever. In contrast, Billy Graham went to heaven three and a half weeks ago on February 21st. I don't know if you know this or not, but you've heard the words a lot. You've seen it on TV. But he, he, he actually took the words of Dwight L. Moody, who was his hero. And he said the same words about his death that Dwight L. Moody said about his death just before he died. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Seize the opportunities while you have them. Give Jesus your best, not the leftovers. Live as though today is the last day of your life. Could well be. Could be mine. Coming here tonight, awful accident on the bridge. Coming into Savannah. Everything was closed down going the other way. I don't know, ambulances. Just looked like, you know, the whole place is closed down. And every time I see that, you know, you wonder, who, what happened? Somebody die? Did they know the Lord? Uh, so let's be sure that we're serious about this thing and we love the Lord and we leave a good spiritual legacy behind. So when Pastor Dimmitt has to preach your message, he can bear good testimony to you as a faithful man, woman of God. Father in heaven, I thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Pastor Dimmitt's faithful exposition week by week by week of the Holy Bible. Thank you for this church that cares, not only for themselves and their family here, but for people they'll never meet all around the world until we get to glory. Thank you for this precious time together. In Christ's name, amen.